want you to say this with me. There's a touch that delivers. That's the touch that God wants to communicate today. You know, there's so many people talk about what used to happen. And thank God for what used to happen. Nate just reminded me a while ago of times he can remember when people would bring cigarettes and throw them on the altar or other things and throw them at the altar and get up and leave them there and go back. Why? Because they've received a touch that set them free. That's the kind of touch God still has and that's the kind of touch is required. That's the kind of touch that God wants to touch you with. No matter what you have wrong in your life, Jesus is what's right and he can handle it. And yet in our environment and culture today, we're being taught, no, that's just the way it is. If you are, you just got to learn to deal with it. I beg to differ with you. He will make you a completely whole person and set you free from all those bondages and clutches. And then we hear preachers talk about, well, uh, you know, uh, what God's about to do. Let me tell you. And yet it doesn't happen. I don't think he wants to talk about what's about to happen. He wants to talk about it's going to happen right now. He's a right now God. Amen. So this touch will change who and whatever is touched. And I want to read out of Mark chapter 5 today, this passage of Scripture. You can read along with me. They'll have it on the screen. It says, There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even the garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. We'll say it again. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Mark chapter 5 is a very interesting chapter because it's filled with people facing hopeless situations. Now, I'm not talking about just hopeless as some general characteristic. I'm talking about people that could not get free from what had a hold of them. The chapter opens with Jesus going to the Gadarenes and there we meet, a, we meet a man who is so possessed by evil spirits that they're not able to bind him or control him for his own safety and health. They bound him with chains or with shackles. They bound him with other things, and he just breaks those things free. And he roams about. He's living in a graveyard. He's cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus shows up on that shoreline and Jesus delivers him from en enough, there's so many demon powers inside of him that there was enough of them to cause 2,000 pigs in whom they entered to run in frantic panic and drown. That man's carrying a lot of pain. That man was beyond anybody's help. But Jesus had a touch for him. And then I come, he, he's, he leaves the Gadarenes and travels back over the Sea of Galilee onto the Galilean shoreline. And when he gets there, there's a huge crowd of people waiting on him. He's drawing these large numbers of people to him because 
there's a touch that delivers and that heals. And these people are there. They're wanting to hear him. They're wanting to be around him. And they're just pressing in on him. He can hardly move for that reason. And out of the crowd comes one man who's the Bible says is a synagogue leader. This man is a man of influence. A man that's kind of up in society. He's a man of spiritual power. But yet he's in a lot of trouble. This man has the responsibility of the maintenance over the temple. He has the responsibility of making sure the scrolls are prepared and ready to be read. He's the one that has to select who's going to do the readings, what scriptures will be read. His job is to make sure who's going to do the praying, who's going to do the teaching, who's going to do the preaching. And yet when Mark presents him, he doesn't present him in, in his official position. He presents him as a father who's desperate. And that man approaches Jesus as soon as he gets to the shore. And he says to him, Jesus, I want you to come to my house because my daughter is almost dead. And I want you to put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And Jesus said, let's go. He's willing to leave the crowd to just go to that one man's house. Why? Because he knows there's, he's the one that has the touch that changes everything when it, that it touches and so he begins, they start without a moment to spare. He heads straight towards Jairus' home. But as he begins to do that, there's another desperate person in the crowd. And it's this woman we just read about. And as the Bible says, she comes up behind him and she grasps the tassel of his lower garment. And when she does that, two things happen. Suddenly. Her disease is healed. She touched him and she was healed immediately. And secondly, Jesus immediately stops. He's not now going on to Jairus' house. He's stopping to find out who touched him. In other words, with all these people that are around him, he's being pushed, he's being shoved. No, everybody's probably trying to pat him on the back, but he stops and he says, who touched me? The disciples say, what are you talking about? How can, they, how can we tell you that everybody's touching you? But he still asks the same question over and again. Who touched me? In other words, somebody in this crowd touched me in a way that nobody else touched me and I felt something come out of me and I want to know who it was. I want to tell you today he's in this house. He's here right now. There's a lot of people in this room, been a lot of people in here in the last service, but he's looking for somebody who's ready to touch him in a way that their life has changed. And I want to talk about today, just briefly, this woman. I want to talk about the touch. I want to talk about power. And I want to end it talking about the altar. This woman, she's desperate. She has a gynecological issue that has caused her to bleed for 12 consecutive years. This is more than just a monthly cycle. This is something that's been going on daily for 12 years. The Bible says in Leviticus 15, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. And in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. 
So that's her status. This woman is unclean, which means she's not allowed to be around people. It means she's not allowed to touch anyone. No one's allowed to touch her lest they also become unclean, and they will if they touch her. Anything she touches, they can't touch either. Anywhere she sits, no one can sit. I'm here to tell you contact tracing in those days a lot more intense than the CDC does now. Because it was life and death. And so she is ostracized from her family, from all of her friends, from her faith. She's not allowed to go to church. She cannot go to the temple. Her sense of self-worth, no doubt, has been challenged. She's stigmatized, identified as being unclean. No one wants to be around her. So what does she do? She sneaks up into this crowd. I'm sure she's probably disguised herself so they don't know who she really is. And she sneaks in this crowd as she knows this man named Jesus is there and acting on the hope of this one last chance for her life to change. She has no more money. She has no more personal strength. She has no more emotions. She's even beyond the feelings of remorse. She feels doomed for life unless she can get to this man. And the Bible says three things about her. She heard about Jesus. She came to Jesus. And she touched Jesus. This touch. This was not just some what I would say is a touch of notoriety. I don't know about you, but I've, I've actually done this before. Just wanting the experience of maybe touching someone that you saw that was famous. I remember one time I got off a plane in, in Indianapolis, and as I got off the plane, a large crowd of people were there, and at the center of that crowd was Muhammad Ali. And I remember I decided I'm not leaving this airport till I shake that man's hand. I shook the champ's hand. I can tell my grandchildren, (laughs) the world's greatest boxer ever, I shook his hand. I don't tell him he was giving out Islamic material, and I took the material just so I could shake his hand. (laughs) Another time, my oldest son had gotten me a ticket to go to the practice round of the Masters in Augusta, Georgia. And I'm here to tell you that day, it just so worked out, I came this close to Tiger Woods. You tell me, would you be that close? And I'll say, hey, man, give me five. (laughs) Just to be able to say, you know, I was able to shake his hand. One day, Chad and myself, we were, this is several years ago, we were in Atlanta at the Peril Mart. And that's a large wholesale place down there in we were on this elevator going up to the fourth or fifth floor, and lo and behold, the elevator stops, and on the elevator gets Neon Dion, Dion Sanders. Now, you know me and Chad have some time with that now, with, with, with the big Neon, Dion. One time, uh, we were downtown here at the Chattanooga, and Kay reminded me of this a while ago. We were down there eating with uh, my oldest son and his family, I think Chad was there. He decided he couldn't stay. He had to leave. And when he left, guess who walks in? Lionel Richie. 
Yeah, baby. We stood and talked with Lionel Richie for a long time. Got to shake his hand. He got to tell me about how he'd been called to be in the priesthood. One day the priest told him, you need to sing. You don't need to preach. So just to be able to touch somebody of notoriety, it has meaning, does it not? Or maybe at certain places you go to, and I'm crazy about some of this sometimes. When we were in Jerusalem one time, and being in Jerusalem, you just, it's my first experience here. You feel like you're going home. You feel like you've come home. It just feels like you belong there. And I remember we were in old Jerusalem and in the city of David, and we're going up the steps where Jesus would have walked the night that he was arrested. He would have walked up those very steps and those very stones. He would have walked up because he was going up where Caiaphas would have tried him. Now, I'm a bit crazy. Here's what I do. Now, I don't, I don't make it. I don't tell nobody I'm doing. I kind of kick my shoes off, and I'm just going all up and down them steps. I'm making sure my foot touches someplace where Jesus Christ himself has put his foot before. Amen? Yeah, maybe you wouldn't do that, but I did. <laughs> and then also, when you get to the top of that, there's this, what is called the sacred pit. This is where Jesus would have been down in a hole the night that he was going through those trials. And where that podium is at is probably where he would have been standing. And you, you can't hardly see it, but up to the left there's a window. And then to the right there are two windows there. And that would have been where Caiaphas and all the high priests would have been when they were condemning Jesus. And he stood there. You want an experience? And to go stand in the same place where Jesus would have been standing. And I'm telling you, it's an awesome feeling to be there. Some of these places, I'm just saying, to touch some of those places. Another place was Kay and I were on a mission trip, I believe, probably going into Asia on our way back. She said to, uh, she said to me, we're going to stop in Rome. I want you to go to some of those biblical sites, and that's what we did. One of the places we went to, I went down into the Mamertine prison. And this is where the apostle Paul himself spent probably 10 years of his life in prison. A man who's called to preach the gospel around the world, spread the news of Jesus. He, he always wanted to go where he, Jesus never been preached. And here he is, he's confined 10 years of life. Tell me he's not depressed. Tell me he doesn't feel like God's forgotten. But that's where we learn. He wrote to us, I've learned to be content in whatever state I find myself in. He didn't get to spend those 10 years out there. But let me tell you, what he wrote while he was in there still travels to all those places he wanted to be gone. And I would just uh, put the other picture up there. I took this second picture myself. Just to sit there and be in the same room he was in, to have my feet and to sit down on places probably he would have sat. I'm just saying there was a, is a, is a, is a wonderful feeling. I made sure I did the best I could to soak up all I could while I was there. Notoriety, but that's not what touched Jesus with this woman. This woman that touched Jesus here is the same. The touch she had was a touch of desperation. Has no notoriety to it. It's a touch of desperation. The Bible says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things seen. She saw something. And a conviction gripped her heart. I've got to get to that man. I, I won't make it another day. I am out of options. 
I have no other choices. I have no other place to go to. And they say this man is a healing man. I've got to get to him. And so she, with her eyes set upon him, she absolutely says, this is where I'm going. I don't care what it takes. I have to get there. Something about Jesus held her attention so much. And I think I know what it is. Now, if you're in a crowd of people, and unless you're the tallest person there, you may have a hard time finding someone who's not the tallest person there. And Jesus would not have been the tallest person there. I believe this is what caused him to stand out and she was able to keep her eye upon this. It is the tallit. And you know, the tallit is what rabbis would have been wearing. It no doubt is a spiritual garment. This is the same garment that Elijah would have worn. It's a miracle garment. His would have been made out of leather. But he would, he would strike the waters and the waters would part. He would be able to lay this, his, his leather tallit on a dead boy and pray on him, over him and he comes back to life. Well, that woman has enough cultural knowledge inside of her to know that this man must be a representative of God. And having heard about him, she sees this and she's coming after it, but it's this long tassel here. There's four of them, one on each corner. She knows enough to know that that represents the Torah, the law of God, the sacredness of God. And what she's going to do is she's going to get this tassel. She snuck up behind him and she takes that tassel and she's going to wrap it in, her, in both of her hands. And when she does that, something supernaturally happens to her. Whatever's inside of this came inside of her and caused whatever was inside of her to get out of her, to leave her, to stop its debilitating power over her. I'm just saying to you today, there's a touch from God that will set you free. There's a touch from God that will make all other powers back up. Thank God. So she watches for him and she chases after him. She pursues him. And she touches him. Verse 30 says, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately he turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? As I said before, everybody's touching him. But somebody, he knew somebody had grabbed that tallit. He knew somebody had found the secret to break through. Well, I felt that. And the moment she touched that garment is the moment he felt the glory and the power of God be released from inside of him. She had a desperation inside of her that caused a withdrawal to come out of God, a withdrawal to come out of Jesus. And she was able to receive that. It's a power. Oh, hear me today. There's power in the name of Jesus. It's not just songs we sing. It's reality of what people receive. 
We've got to go beyond just the singing and the recognition to the receiving of the power of Almighty God in our life. Mm -hmm. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, said the psalmist. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. Here's what I'm aware of today. People go on all kinds of power trips. Do they not? Athletes, coaches, politicians, preachers, <laughs> presidents, they all get caught up in the addiction of power. World leaders, as a matter of fact, the worst problems we face today are caused because of power trips of world leaders. Not that they're right. It's all about them. But I'm here to remind you today, I know there's military power. And I know that there is political power. And I know there's atomic power. There's economic power. For some of you, it's a gang power or a threatening power. And for some, it's a satanic power. I know the power is out there, but I'm here to tell you there's a power greater than all those other powers. There's a power that will make them all back down and be silent and back away and give up that which they have held. Mm. Lift your hand up for a minute and let's just thank him for that. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. There's a paradigm shift taking place when Jesus is here. Things are changing. All the Old Testament stuff was all types and shadows. It was pointing to him because in him we live and move and have our being. And this paradigm shift is what is being demonstrated. It didn't just start right here in Mark 5. As a matter of fact, chronologically, even before that, if you read into Luke, Luke 6, let me read you this passage. The Bible said in verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place and with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. That happened before we get to Mark chapter 5. Let me just give you the, if I can, the chronology of this. Jesus prayed all night. Coming out of that prayer, he knew who his 12 disciples were to be. So he calls together all the disciples. There's hundreds and even thousands of followers and he selects 12. He selects the 12 to be with him. And he's going to spend the next two and a half years daily with those 12. But in this particular narrative, Jesus calls the 12. In addition to the 12, there's the other thousands that are people that are also followers. In addition to those are thousands. The Bible says multitudes of other people who are sick, demon-possessed. And the Bible says they were there to touch him because power came out from him and healed them all. There's a paradigm shift taking place. In the Old Testament, you talk about it. 
The Old Testament, you point towards it. You get to Jesus, he says, hey, I'm here. It's not about what used to be. It's not about what will, is going to be. It's, it's here. It's about what is. And I am that I am. The I am is here. I am the bread of life. I am the first and the last. I am all that you need. As Jesus was here at this passage, this is happening to him. When he selects those 12, he begins to give them the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to teach them about the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. He's going to teach them there's a kingdom greater than the kingdom of Rome. He's going to teach them there's a king higher than the one that's here. And then as he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, all these sick, demonized people are pressing towards him. I can only imagine the calls and the cries from the crowd. I can only imagine what Jesus with his eyes is seeing. Sick people, lame people, people that are diseased, people that are who knows what twitches and what manifestations of demon powers are carrying on. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and in the middle of his teaching, he stops and he starts healing all those people. We saw that happen right here last Sunday. How many of you here last Sunday at this time? In the middle of it all. Did you not see that? In the middle of it, he stops. What does he do? He sets people free. He makes people whole. He touches them with a touch that changes their life. I heard cries coming out of this altar last Sunday that was so beautiful. People crying with everything within them. Help me, Jesus. Don't you know that kind of cry got Jesus' attention and everything else has got to go forget the order of service, forget what you got on your plate. Let me give them what's on mine. Don't think it's strange when that happens. It happened right here in the Sermon on the Mount. He stops. He heals them all. Then he goes back and finishes his teaching. A paradigm shift. I want to close this today. Talking about the altar. It's in the Old Testament. When God covenanted with the nation of Israel that they would be his people. And that he would be their God. This is the third time God's made this a covenant with somebody. Adam and Eve messed it up. Noah, that crowd, Noah's generation messed it up. There's judgment after each one. At the Tower of Babel, they messed it up again. And then God says, I'm going I'm to have my own family. I'm going to start with a man named Abraham. Abraham's going to be a man that builds altars. He built seven of them in his lifetime. Everywhere Abraham goes, he builds an altar to the Lord. It's in Exodus 20 when the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You've seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. But you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, 
For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. In other words, Moses, I don't need your help. I know how to provide the stone. I have rocks. And he'll one day say, I have a rock. I have a cornerstone that no one can touch. No one can shape. Just go get the rock. You build the altar. I'm going to come to that place. That place is going to be a meeting place for us. At this place, Moses, where my name will be remembered, where my promises will be honored, there you will be able to call on my name and I will come and meet with you there. The altar was the place of meeting. Yes, it's a place of sacrifice. Animals were slaughtered. Blood was shed. Sacrifices were made. But when the altar was made right, God in heaven would come and meet with his people. He will go on and tell Moses, he told Moses later on, build me a sanctuary. I want a place where I can come in my glory and be near my people. So that Old Testament tabernacle is built. It's a campsite. It's movable. When God wants to move his people, the first thing they do is they pack up the campsite. They take the all, they take all the tabernacle, there's the outside, the outer court, the inner court, and then the holy of holies. The outer court everybody can go to. The inner court the priests go to. The holy of holies, God goes there. The Shekinah glory is there. There's a cloud over that place. And everybody has got their tents pitched towards this tabernacle. Everybody there gets up in the morning and sees the cloud. Let me just tell you something. You better start living close to the presence of God. You and I better start looking for the glory cloud of God and pitch our tents towards that place. To do anything less is to wind up in a mess you can't get out of. Wake up, America. You're in a mess and you can't get out of it. You can't legislate your way out of it. You can't educate your way out of it. It won't work. Only the glory of God will get you back where you're safe and whole again. How do you get to that glory? How do you get to where nothing but holy exists? You start in the outer court and you begin to walk through. When you go into the outer court, the first thing you'll see is that altar. It's called the bronze altar. Seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet high. It's the place where the sacrifices are laid. There's several things about that altar that always associated with it. Number one, the sacrifice. To get on that altar, they had to die. Can I say it again? To get on that altar, you had to die. There's four horns around that altar, and all of those horns are there to tie the sacrifice down. The second thing about that altar that's, that's, uh, that's always associated with, no matter where it's at, is the blood from the dead animal has been sprinkled. Those four horns, each one of those horns have blood on the top of it. 
It's been anointed with blood. It's been covered with blood. The third thing is there's some anointing oil that's going to be made. You've got to sprinkle it on this thing, which represents undoubtedly the glory of God, the anointed presence of God. And then the last thing that's associated with these altars always is the fire. You remember Elijah in the wilderness when he confronts Ahab? And here's what the confrontation was. He said to Ahab's, to the prophets of Baal, 850 of them. He said, build, your, build yourself your altar. Put your sacrifice on it. And you pray. And you call for your God to answer with fire. Go ahead and do it. We'll wait on you. And wait he did. Hour after hour. When they prayed, they had their sacrifices, and then they started cutting themselves and doing all kinds of gyrations around it, trying to somehow or another entice fire from Baal. It never comes. And then Elijah finally says, Hey, y'all done yet? Let me try. And the Bible says he rebuilds that altar. When he rebuilds that altar, Then he says, pour a bunch of water on there. I don't want the odds to be in my favor. I want it to be an impossible thing that God does here. And they fill it full of water. And then he prays 63 words. And boom. Fire falls out of heaven and consumes it. Fire is always associated with this altar. Fire. Matter of fact, the fire from this altar will be the one that they carry to the next altar before the Holy of Holies, which is the altar of incense. Priests were not to strike their own matches, come up with their own fire. No, you go, you go get the fire off that altar and bring to the next one. We're trying to get people into the presence of God. We're trying to get people to the touch of God. That's what the Old Testament's all about. Well, Jesus comes along, and guess what? He's going to expedite all these matters. Now, here's what I want you to remember. It's in Exodus 29, 37. God was so specific about this. Not just build any altar, not just build an altar, but the altar itself has got to become most holy, consecrated. 29, 37 of Exodus. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And the altar shall be most holy. But listen to this. Whatever touches the altar will become holy. You want to get free? You go touch that altar. And it'll happen to you just like it happened to this woman. You see, Jesus is not only the fulfillment, he becomes the altar. He climbs on the cross. He gives his blood. He gives up his life. And that altar becomes so sanctified, he becomes the altar. And that's what the Bible teaches us in Hebrews 10 and 13. We have an altar is what the writer of Hebrews says. It's not that old thing. It's not what you used to have to carry animal sacrifices to. No, this is the better altar. This is the one, this is God's altar. This is what God sacrificed. This is God's blood that's on that altar. And when you touch that altar, you get what that altar has. 
which is freedom and wholeness and healing. And you don't walk away crippled, lame, blind, and broken and disgusted. You walk away different because you're touched by the power of God. This is why I said to Nate, is this too hard? And I loved what he said. He said, Pastor, if I hadn't heard it hard like that, I wouldn't be here today. You see, people come looking for a blessing. You better come looking for the holy. You can be near. That woman's in a crowd. You can be close. You can be all around it and still not get it. It happens when you touch.